Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. All right. Well, we are joined with Jason from Tablas Creek, and I am so excited. Jason, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your business and how it's going and the regenerative take you guys have on things? Sure. So we are a vineyard and winery in Paso Robles, California. We're one of the pioneers of the California Rhone movement, which which basically just means that we're dedicated to the grape varieties that are originally uh, come from the Rhone Valley in the south of France. Um, it's a partnership, Tablas Creek is a partnership between my family and the Perrin family who have been making wine in Chateauneuf-du-Pape and the, and the regions around there since the early 20th century. So um, the idea when we started this in 1989 was to find a part of California where the raw materials, the soils and the climate and the rainfall were similar to what our partners were used to in Chateauneuf and then bring in the grape varieties that, that they were used to working with, several of which had never been used in America before, and then kind of do a riff on, on those Southern Rhone Chateauneuf-du-Pape wines um, in a spot that seemed like it'd be a good fit for it. So that's, that's basically what we did. We, we've imported um, 18 different grape varieties from France. We have them planted in, in our own vineyard here. We have about 125 acres of vineyard. Um, we've also built a grapevine nursery and sold vine cuttings to, to, to hundreds of other vineyards up and down the West Coast, because um, it turned out we weren't the only ones who were interested in these grapes. Um, in terms of our sustainability piece, we started off really by, by beginning where the Perens work um, at, at their estate at Bocasta, which is they have been farming organically since the 1950s. And they do it out of a conviction that that's really the best possible way to show off your character of place. I mean, this is a, a classic French concept, uh, the idea of terroir, that, that you can make wine that, that tastes of the place in which it was grown and couldn't have been made anywhere else. And so we didn't know exactly what that signature was going to be here in Paso Robles, but we figured whatever that signature was, we wanted to give it, give it the best possible shot to show. So that was our starting point. We started out farming organically back in 1989 when we, when we got started. And little by little, it was that effort to show off the terroir and to minimize the things that we were putting on the vineyard from the outside that led us from farming organically to farming biodynamically and eventually to farming regeneratively. Um, so it's the, the idea that the critical thing for us as, as grape growers and winemakers is minimize anything that doesn't come from the land itself. Um, so that means like we started off applying organic fertilizer, which we brought in from outside or applying compost that we brought in from outside. Now we have a big composting program that we, that we do with all of the skins and seeds and, and vine clippings and all of that. We also um, brought in our own flock of sheep starting about a decade ago um, and have grown from having a dozen sheep to now having about 200. And those turn our own weeds into our own fertilizer. Um, so again, minimizing what has to come in from the outside and instead producing it here, here on site. I love that. Uh, how long would you say that transition was, you know, definitely not a year. How long did that take you guys to start going from basic organic to regenerative? It wasn't, it wasn't a single step. There were a whole bunch of different steps that were involved and we were already doing a lot of, we were doing a lot of composting before we got serious about it in in 2010, but it was in 2010 that we decided to farm a 20 acre slice of the vineyard biodynamically. And we did it not, not particularly because 
we believed in the more mystical pieces of biodynamics. There's parts of biodynamics that are, are just really good farming and there's parts of it which are kind of like uh, pixies and fairy dust, lunar cycles and um, things like that. So, but we did it out of, out of this belief that um, what we were gonna be doing is building soils that were really full of life, rich and resilient, that we were going to have soils that were gonna be able to retain more moisture. We were gonna be able to give our grapevines a little easier life. And this is a really stressful place here. Paso Robles is a high stress environment for any growing thing. It's, it can be 105 degrees in the day in the summer and drop down to 60 degrees at night. We get all of our rain between November and April and then it is dry for six months. Um, there's hardly any topsoil. It's almost all, it's, it's this rocky calcareous shale. So it's old seabed. So this, these are not easy conditions for anything that's growing. You get, you, and so everything that we could do to give those vines a little bit easier life, we felt like it might mean that we wouldn't have to replant our vines at 25 years old, the way that a lot of our neighbors do. And we'd instead get vines that would live to 30, 40, 50. And that would be where the quality benefit would, would come is that we'd have more older vines. But it turned out that the very first year that we switched to farming that, that 20 acre slice biodynamically, the, the wines that came out of that, those blocks floated to the top of our blind tasting trials when we do our blending in the spring. And the first year we kind of thought that was interesting and, and, and thought we'd see what happened the next year. The next year, the same thing happened. And it was not that these blocks were chosen for having been particularly great blocks in the first place, it was just a slice, the slice of the Western edge of our property, which had high points and low points, uh, thin soils and deeper soils, um, a bunch of different grape varieties, a bunch of different facings. And so we weren't sure exactly what the difference was, what had made that difference, but decided that we needed to try to, to, to farm more of the vineyard that way. And so switched from 20 acres to 40 acres in 2012 and continue to love the results that we saw and we're eventually farming the whole vineyard biodynamically by 2016. So um, it was more a question of scaling up what we were doing than it was making it to be a gradual transition. I mean, we tried to do it in a very thoughtful and complete way in those 20 acres, but it's a different amount of work to do that in 20 acres than it is to do it in 125. The scale is the key, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, that's, biodynamics is more hands-on than, than even standard organic farming. There's more things that you need to be doing at more different times, um, because a lot of what you're doing is essentially preparing your land and, and seeding it with the right microorganisms and the right species that will prevent you from having to intervene later. Um, and so, it, it is somewhat more hands-on and more labor-intensive. And, and the work that you need to do in 20 acres, like to expand that to 40 and then 60 and then 100 and then 125, it just takes, it just takes, uh, it takes a little more resources and, and a little more people and more time. And how about that next step to regenerative? Did you find that that was still super intense or was that more manageable? How, how was the next phase like going after that? So we were already, so, we were invited in 2019, is that right? No, 2018. We got a call from the Regenerative Organic Alliance asking if we would be interested in being the, the winery, the vineyard and winery participant in their pilot program for the new Regenerative Organic Certification. And at that point, we had never even heard the term regenerative. We, we were doing a lot of this stuff, but we didn't know 
the word. We didn't know it had a word. Um, and so our first thought was, man, not another certification that we're going to have to deal with. Like, But the more we looked at it, the more it appealed to us on a bunch of different levels. It appealed to us because it took the parts of biodynamics that we thought really mattered, the, the soil health and biodiversity and microbiome pieces of biodynamics, and separated it from the more mystical elements. And then it added commitments to reduction in the use of resources, because that's kind of a blind spot in a lot of, in both organic and biodynamics. It's it's not a question of like, are you doing the best you can with the amount of water that you're using? Or are you using renewable energy? And these are, I think most people would would say and understand intuitively that you should be doing both of those things if you wanna be farming as responsibly as you can. But it's just not what those other certifications concern themselves with. So we liked that focus. And then it incorporated an animal welfare certification, which is something that we were doing anyway and a farm worker fairness pillar that we thought was really cool. Um, so it, it seemed like for us that it addressed the, the central weakness of biodynamics um, and then added things that together felt like they would become the gold standard for responsible farming. And we thought if that was a, a program that existed and we had the chance to be a part of it and the chance to, to shape it for, for the wine community and a chance to advocate for it, then it was, it was something that we needed to do. So the, a lot of the stuff we were already doing, I remember the, the animal welfare um, auditor came and drove around with our shepherd for um, a couple of hours and I guess half an hour into it, told him like, you guys are so far ahead of the gold standard for this, like you're great. Like, don't, like, there's not, you're not going to need to change anything. Um, and then a lot of the soil health pieces we were already doing because of biodynamics, but the regenerative organic certification required us to, to measure more things. So biodynamics is very process-based. Like if you do all of the biodynamic stuff, you're biodynamic. Regenerative organics requires that you measure the carbon content in your soil so that you can show that these, these techniques that you're applying are having an impact. Um, so we had to be more systematic about measuring what we were doing, which I think just made a lot of sense. Um, and then we needed to, there was a little more that we needed to do on the, on the uh, farm worker fairness piece that I, I think we've learned a lot from and, and have found really inspiring because what it asks you to do is I mean, you start with a baseline, you have to be paying your farm workers a living wage and their working conditions have to be good. Great. Okay. We were already doing that. But beyond that, it requires that you involve them in the, the discussion and the decision-making of the work that you're doing. So we set up weekly roundtable discussions where we talked about what we had been doing in the vineyard over the last week, talked about what we were going to be doing, solicited feedback. Um, and like it's probably not surprising that that has a bunch of positive benefits, but it was something that we just hadn't been doing. It just wasn't structurally the way that we were organizing things, um, and that's been that's been inspiring. It's been really cool to see, for example, our our vineyard crew coming out on weekends and bringing their families to see the work that they're that they've been doing. And like you've got to believe that that has all of these positive benefits in 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 the way that they're working and the way that they're working together. So that's been a cool and cool and inspiring new piece of it. So it wasn't, we didn't have to make big changes. It wasn't like we were, we were, what we were, the way that we were farming was not compatible with the regenerative organic standards. We were, we were asked to be a part of the pilot program because we were already doing most of this stuff, right. but right. Um, 
having to be more formal about it, I think has some real, some real benefits too. Um, I would love to hear kind of, I, I know there's going to be a couple different levels of the benefits, but maybe just so soil benefits, you know, kind of what are the high level benefits of these formal regenerative practices that you guys were involving? Obviously taste was one of them. And then I'd love to hear a little bit more about that inclusivity of the roundtable discussions, because, you know, this movement, not only are they receiving fair wages, their input is valued. They're part of a movement that's, you know, moving through the globe. Like, can you just kind of go over the different categories and where you guys are seeing all the benefits? Sure. So I feel like there were, I mean, there were really noticeable benefits in vine health and in wine quality in that transition from organics to biodynamics. Um, so that, that I feel like we, we have kind of already banked those improvements, uh, but I do know that some of the things that we've continued to do, things that we've done more recently, like we started applying and, and just in the last couple of years producing our own biochar on site. And that's one of the really powerful regenerative farming tools that we have in our, in our toolkit. But watching the, the impact of the soils that we've been able to, we've been able to amend with this biochar, watching like the cover crop be 20% bigger than it is in the block next door. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty dramatic demonstration of, of vine health or, or of soil health. Um, so that's, that's a piece of it. Um, another piece of it is looking at how we've been able to, to be very systematic about the use of our flock. So as we've learned more, and, and let me, let me back up a step just cause, cause I, I'm sure some of the listeners here are probably wondering how, how this works in a vineyard environment, because wouldn't the sheep happily eat the grapes and the, and the That's leaves. a question we get a lot. So I'm okay. glad you'll hit that one. <laughs> so, so we can only have our sheep in the vineyard after we harvest and before bud break in the spring. So it's basically from mid-October sometime until the beginning of April. But within that, what we do is we do this kind of rotational grazing, um, high density rotational grazing plan where we'll keep the, this flock of sheep in a particular block of like an acre and a half um, for 24 hours and then move them to the next block for the next 24 hours. So they move, they move continuously throughout the vineyard. And because of the way that sheep graze, they, they don't pull grass out by the roots. They clip it like lawnmowers. So they, the, the, the day that they spend in that block, that flock of 200 sheep is going to drop 750 pounds of manure, <laughs> scatter it around the, the vineyard block, and then we move them to the next block before they overgraze an area, and then that grass regrows. And so we have now a plan where the, the sheep get through every block in the vineyard three times every winter, and you look at the, you look at the cumulative impact of dropping like over a ton of, of high quality manure on every acre of your vineyard every winter, um, it's, it's not surprising that the cover crops and the vines look happier. Right. <laughs> so um, it's those sorts of things that I feel like are, they're not necessarily new to us since we started farming regeneratively, but they are a piece of that regenerative farming toolkit that we feel like has such dramatic impacts. Um, so there's that piece. And then the, the second piece you were asking about, about the, the kind of our, our farm worker roundtable, our vineyard worker roundtables. Um, I mean, it was, it was hard at first because the, 
the natural way, the natural hierarchy that in general vineyard crews work is that a winery talks to their, their viticulturist decides what, what they want, talks to their vineyard manager. The vineyard manager tells the crew boss what needs to be done. The crew boss tells the crew what needs to be done. And then when they get done, they ask for what they're supposed to do next. So it's the information flows top down. Um, and I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, there's all sorts of potential issues with that, that I'm sure, I'm sure listeners can imagine. I mean, um, there may be a, a, a great idea that happens, but they don't feel comfortable passing it up the chain or don't feel like it's going to get listened to, or it's going to be seen as a threat. Um, or there are potential language barriers, or there are, um, there might be an issue. Somebody breaks a piece of equipment or sees that a piece of equipment is, is starting to break and doesn't want to say anything about it because they worry they're going to get blamed for it. Um, and so then you only find out about it when it is broken to the point that it doesn't work anymore. So those are, those are issues with that kind of top-down communication approach. Um, and those are all things that, that have, that we've seen really measurable benefits from in the last couple of years where all of a sudden our equipment doesn't break because people feel comfortable saying, okay, there, I think there's an issue with this. Um, before it gets to the point that something is actually broken and everyone's like, oh, I didn't do it, but not my, not my fault. <laughs> um, and then one of the things that we did to start encouraging communication was to do a multi-day, essentially team building training exercise where essentially everybody is asked to talk about, um, talk about their lives, to talk about their, their relationship with this piece of land, to talk about um, their their histories um, and to you go go around and and ask like specifically solicit feedback and that's hard at first um, but it starts a process and then there were also like the the classic team building things like everybody is standing on an imaginary raft which is really just a sheet that's on the ground and how do you turn the the raft over without anybody falling overboard and it's like it's all these things where you you're you're kind of breaking down barriers to to, to help help jumpstart communication. Um, and so just seeing the, the, the ideas that flow from that, but more than that, the comfort level that, that this, this vineyard team, many of whom have been here for decades, has now in speaking up, whereas before there would have been hesitation. Um, so that's the, that's the biggest thing that we see is that all of a sudden you by creating these these spaces where everybody's feedback is is welcomed and solicited, you you get information flow both down and up instead of instead of just from the top down and then who knows what happens at the at the end. Yeah. Are you guys seeing kind of immediate uh, solutions that like the tractors aren't breaking down in the field because people feel like they can talk? Are you are you guys seeing those benefits already come through with that? Absolutely. They, that started, That was one of the first things that we saw is that our equipment broke a lot less. Um, <laughs> and that's is, happy for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's good. This is good. Nobody, nobody wants to be working without two of their three tractors. Right. Um, so yeah, that's 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 been a big piece of it. Awesome. Uh, and I want to pivot a little bit to the consumer side. You were talking that you know biodynamic just rose to the top on taste tests. Can you tell us a little bit about? Kind of, you know, you said you had never heard the word regenerative before. A lot of people who are consumers also don't know what that word means. How are you guys kind of breaking down that, oh, you really love how this tastes? Well, it's regenerative. How are you kind of working on that with consumers? 
So I think one of the problems with regenerative is that it's a mouthful. Like it is a hard <laughs> word to say. That is what everybody but, is saying. <laughs> um, but I think the idea is intuitive in a way that maybe something like biodynamic is not. Um, so the idea that you can have agriculture be a part of the solution to some of these big picture problems like resource scarcity and climate change and uh, things like that. Um, I think that's an idea that makes a lot of sense to people. They just don't know that there is a, a word that encompasses the, the ideas behind it. So I think a lot of it is a question of focusing on what it entails rather than on a name for it. So we spend a lot of time talking about and showing, sharing pictures of the flock of sheep. I mean, we, this is this is lambing season. We have 200 lambs in the vineyard right now. And showing that and using that as a way of, of an, getting an entry point into the discussion of regenerative farming is, is I think, a really easy thing to do. Um, same thing with um, some of the, the pictures of biodiversity. So again, people understand intuitively that like, like bare ground underneath a, a grapevine, like that doesn't look alive and vibrant. Um, so sharing pictures of, of cover crops, sharing pictures of the owl boxes that we have that are that we put up to attract owls to prey on gophers so they don't eat the grapevines. It's, it's these, it, it, I think it works not by talking a lot about regenerative from the top, but instead talking about all of the pieces that are involved in it and sort of building up that story into what it means. Um, it'll be easier. We're gonna, we, we finally, I mean, this is all still new enough, but we've we've just gotten the approvals to start putting the regenerative organic certified logo on our labels, starting with the 2021 vintage wines that we'll start getting into bottle in February. And I think that's going to be a, a really good a good point too, because at that point there is there is a seal, there is something that people will see and then Google to figure out what it all means. That's that's going to I think connect the pieces of it in a useful way. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is an ongoing thing. It's a question of like getting people telling the story on the, the channels that you have and then getting people when they come to visit out into the into the vineyard and, and walking by the, the sheep and walking by the wetland area that we put in to treat our winery wastewater and um, talking about how, how all of those pieces, all of the biodiversity, all the fruit trees that we have interplanted in the grapevines, how all of those fit together it, it makes it real for people in a way that um, just saying it's regenerative farming probably doesn't. Are you guys, have you leaned towards doing more farm tours and things or kind of what's your way, you know, of course for social media, we can post everything we're doing all the time, but what are kind of some other tangible ways that you're feeling like you guys draw people in? Is it through maybe wine education? Like what methods are you guys doing to kind of reach those people? Well, we've always been, we've always tried to get as many people out into the vineyard as we could, because it's, uh, you can't, you can talk until you're blue in the face, but you see, you see it happening in the vineyard. It's, it becomes real in a way that it didn't, didn't before. Obviously that's a little harder in, in COVID times than it was before. I mean, it, we are now back to giving people tours, but um, there was a long stretch where we couldn't for, for a range of reasons and where we just weren't seeing as many people because travel was more difficult and, um, and we were having to communic communicate using electronic and social media tools. But um, yeah, getting people out there is a big piece of it. Um, sharing pictures when we do things that are 
are live and virtual. I have a whole slide deck that I'm used to showing on Zoom, which brings, which kind of breaks apart what the regenerative farming looks like in practical terms. Um, so even if people aren't with me physically in the vineyard, they'll get a sense of, of, of what that entails. Um, and then trying to choose events where we have the opportunity to, to, to tell this story and, and share more than just standing behind a table pouring wine. I'm, I'm kind of over those sorts of tastings where you're just behind a table pouring wine to 500 people over the course of a day and maybe you can get in two or three sentences about what each wine is. Um, I, I've always prioritized events where I could do a seminar and again, share some pictures and really get into the story and details. But that's, I think, the bar is even higher now for me to, to participate in an event. And it, it should be something where, where we can go deeper than just, here's our Syrah, here's our white rum blend. Do you find that consumers also kind of want more now? It's it's was great to produce a great product, but are you finding consumers are really starting to care about the animal welfare certifications? Are you finding any changes in consumer behavior around that? I think it's been a steady growth in people caring about how the things that they choose to buy and, and choose to consume are produced. I, I don't think it's, I don't know that it's something which has, has been a sea change like just in COVID times or in the last, or since we got our regenerative organic certification. I think it's been something that, that more and more people have been interested in steadily over the last 10 or 15 years. That's good to see. That's good to hear. It's, you know, it's on the growth. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. And, and I think wine is in a really, privileged position to tell this story because I think people think of their wines as coming from a specific place in a way that they maybe don't for most of the other things that they buy. I mean, yes, you want to know that the, the workers who are and the land that's growing the cotton for the shirt that you are, are buying, that, that the workers are treated well and the land was treated well, but you probably aren't visiting that cotton field. No. <laughs> uh, whereas with wine, I think the I think the translation of from how the vineyard is treated to how the wine tastes, I feel like that's that's a more direct line. And it's also the kind of thing that people want to do anyway. They want to visit the vineyards and the and see the way that the wines are produced. And that's a it, it's maybe not quite a uniquely American thing, but it's certainly a particularly American thing. I, our, our French partners are amazed that so many people want to come to wine country and visit the winery. For, for them, for most French consumers, the idea that you would go and visit where your, where your wine was made is, is just as bizarre as deciding to go and visit where your shoes were made or where your, your, your bag was made. You just don't do it. You, you, you trust that what you get is a good product and, and that's kind of as far as it goes. So um, I'm grateful that visiting wine country and going wine tasting is a thing in America and has really been a thing for at least since like Sideways came out 15 plus years ago. Yeah. That makes me go back to thinking about you talking about your uh, workers bringing their families to the farm. Do you feel like there's almost this shift to that agriculture was something you didn't want to see? It was something that happened and you wanted it to be done well, but you didn't want to see it. And now we're kind of encouraging that being a farmer wouldn't be the worst career in the entire world, that, you know, there's almost a renewed sense of agriculture or is that kind of something you guys are seeing as well? I hope that's right. Okay. Um, I I think there's still an awful lot of agriculture that 
that people really wouldn't be happy to see. I, I would say regenerative agriculture specifically. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but a regenerative, regenerative agriculture is a really small percentage of all the agriculture that's out there. And of course, it's only going to work to the extent to which it's, it's rolled out more broadly. But I do think the idea that, I mean, the, the rise of farmers markets and the idea that you want to know your farmer and you want to, you, you want to visit a farm stand and you want to, you want to see the places and support the places that are farming in a way that you would want. Like, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a growing phenomenon. It was certainly not true, particularly when I was growing up 30 years ago. Um, and it's, it has grown steadily and I hope it continues to grow. Um, and I guess we'll wrap up with my last question for the farmers that are working nights and weekends and they have a hobby farm and they're doing this on their side and they really want to become full-time farmers. Do you kind of have any advice on how you went from a rough piece of land and a dream of growing vines to making it the business that it is like, you know, that that's a huge journey. What can you share about it to help others? Oof. Um, 30 years so... in five minutes real quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I have two pieces of advice. Then they're sort of, uh, they sort of address this from different tacks. Uh, one is if somebody is, is farming, maybe they're trying to farm mostly organically, but they haven't quite wanted to pull the trigger and go all the way, or they're not sure what the right step is to take. Um, I would say approach it incrementally and understand that like, maybe you aren't at the point where you can get rid of um, all of your fungicides, but at least you can stop using herbicides and pesticides. Or um, maybe you're farming organically already, um, but you're using compost that you have to buy and, and bring from someplace else. Well, maybe you can start composting. I mean, there's, there are steps, there are incremental steps that, that, that get, you, get you to really remarkable places if you keep taking those incremental steps. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is I think the most important marker of success if you are trying to make farming into a business is developing relationships with your actual customers. So the more that you can bring the people who will ultimately be buying your product to, what, to where you're growing it and get them inside your world, the more durable those connections are going to be. So that's that was for us the, the point at which like we started really being successful as a business because we, our initial idea is that we were going to make these wines and sell them through the distribution network that our, our French partners wines are all sold through. And I mean, those are great wines and, and there's always lots of demand for them. And we just sort of assumed that the market would figure out that we were associated with Bocastel and therefore would buy the wines. That turned out to be a, a much bigger leap than we had, we had thought it would be. But it was the point in 2002 when we made the decision, okay, we've got to, we've got to bring people in. Like we got, we, we opened a tasting room. We started participating in, in a lot more local events and inviting people out. We started inviting writers out to come and write about what we were doing. We started, um, we started a wine club, which started this ongoing connection with people that they, that they would have a reason to come back every six months. And it was, it was through all of those relationships that we built that this really became the successful business that it is. It is not through growth in our wholesale market, even though it has grown, it still basically just breaks even for us each year. Hmm. Um, it's the relationships with the, the customers directly and the fact that we can give them, because we're selling to them directly and cutting out 
at least two levels of a distribution chain, we can give them good discounts and still do better financially than we can in what we sell wholesale. Um, it's that piece of the business that really makes, makes us successful. So, and that's all possible because of those direct relationships and because we've been able to keep people interested enough in this journey that we're on that they want to continue to be a part of it. That's amazing. Cause I would really think that, you know, I would assume that the wholesale would be the opposite, but it's amazing that you are kind of saying that it's small scale, you know, people that are buying direct are really your bread and butter. Cause we always think of larger businesses, you know, buying big and doing it a lot, but that's, you know, is it that the margin is really great or what do you, you know, how did you sustain a small community effort? <laughs> Um, so I think it's more that the wholesale wine market is a difficult market. Um, it is legislated. So each state has its own licensing. You have to go through a licensed wholesaler. And if you want to sell a bottle of wine for 30 bucks um, on, a, on a retail shelf, the retailer is going to expect, expect to buy it for 20 and the wholesaler is going to expect to buy it for 15. So that's, you have to, at that point, you're already selling it for half of what the, the end price is going to be. So that's, that's just the way that wine distribution works. It also, uh, there's been a, because it is state licensed, there's also been a real um, move towards consolidation. So there are fewer wholesalers than there used to be, and they tend to have many, 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 many thousands of wines in their portfolios. So it's hard to break through. Um, and a lot of the retail has consolidated too. There's a lot more chain retail and a lot fewer independent retailers and restaurants than there were even 40 years ago. So the, the wholesale market's tough, but the, the, the market in terms of direct sales, wine is the perfect product for that kind of long tail marketing where we're, we make 30,000 cases of wine a year. I mean, that's what, 360,000 bottles. That's a, that's a fairly large number of bottles when you think about it in, in, in absolute terms. But really, how many fans do we need to sell all of our wine each year? Like 50,000, maybe? 30,000? I don't know, some, some relatively modest number, given that there are something like 70 million regular wine drinkers in the United States. So we need, what, one-tenth of 1% 1 of the regular wine drinkers to be fans of Pablos Creek? Is that enough to, to support a robust wholesale business? Maybe not. Um, is it enough for us to, to find enough customers who come here, get excited about what we're doing, um, join our wine club or our mailing list, get information from us as we do different stuff and make that into a really powerful part of the business? Yeah, it absolutely is. I love that. That makes it sound so very approachable to the people who are like, well, I can't possibly get a market share. There's too many competitors. And, you know, the argument is forge a great connection and they're there. You just got to find them and make the relationship worth it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it's for us, it's we've always believed that like, the most important thing is making sure that the customers who you have stay happy and feel valued. Um, cause it's, I mean, there's all this, all this good data out there that it essentially costs 10 times as much to get a new customer as it does to, to keep an existing one. So you better do a good job of keeping your existing customers happy. Um, and there are, yeah, despite that, there are lots of ways that, that businesses fall down at that. And I think one of the, one of the easy ways to, to keep and build that connection is just to make them feel a part of what's going on. And, that means regular communication. That means trying to demystify things that might be otherwise kind of intimidating or difficult. And it means taking great care of people when they come to see you. And I don't feel like that sort of thing is beyond the resources of, of 
of most people who would want to be want to be creating a farm based business like this. You make it sound so simple. We can all do it. <laughs> well, I love that. Um, do you want to go ahead and share the website and the social media so people can follow you? I mean, we'll be reposting all your great cover crop pictures and all the beautiful pictures you see I suppose. But if you want to share some of your handles. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, it's all very easy. So um, it's tublesscreek.com. Um, and we are at Tublis Creek at all the, all the major social media networks. Um, one of the things I do want to give, give a little plug for is that if this sort of either from a business standpoint, how you communicate what your business is doing and is all about, or if from a consumer standpoint, you just want to want that inside glimpse into the things we're working on. We've been keeping a blog, basically writing, uh, writing a, a blog a week for 15 years at this point. Um, and that's linked off of the, the Tablas Creek homepage. Um, and check it out. It's, I think it's something that I'm really proud of that it's not just me. It's a, it's a team effort, but it's, it's a way of again, bringing people inside our world and communicating, not just about what we're doing in the field and in the cellar, but also about the business and about the, the reasons why we find this, this work so compelling. And I think if you can, if you can tell that story, if you can get people into your own excitement, um, you're, you're, you're 90% of the way there. I love it. I think lots of people would benefit from that. So I, everybody should definitely go check that out. I appreciate it so much, Jason. And thank you so much. We'll send people your way and I can't wait to see the good work you guys keep doing. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate it.